So you could read verse 13 this way. The nation that was represented in Jacob was loved by me, was accepted by me. But I've rejected the nation. I've hated the nation that would eventually descend from Esau. They were not elected for the role of service that Israel was. You're listening to a sermon series titled Romans, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Have you ever been in a conversation where someone completely changes the subject on you? Maybe you're talking about homeschooling with another mom, and then a third person walks up and says, hey, speaking of the COVID vaccine, (laughs) and just totally changes the subject on you. Has that happened to you? It can be hard mentally to switch gears, so to speak, from what you were talking about to suddenly this new conversation or this new topic. And that being said, as we begin uh, a new section in the book of Romans, Uh, We are turning from chapter 8 to chapter 9 in Romans, and we're going to feel the change, both in subject as well as tone, immediately. And I want us to navigate this change slowly and intentionally so that no one is standing by lost in conversation. We left off in Romans 8.39 with, remember, the sweeping triumph of God's uh, love and Paul's confident assurance in this immovable love of God for his people. And remember that was just a powerful conclusion to Romans chapter 8. And then we open up Romans chapter 9, verse 1, and we dramatically turn from assurance to anguish and from celebration to sorrow. However, we're going to title the subtitle of this section in Romans 9 through 11, God's Sovereign Purpose, which is also the title of the sermon today. And we're going to be in these three chapters for the next nine or so weeks, and as we are kind of jumping into these verses, we're going to see together the sovereign, merciful purposes of God in our election. And we need to proceed full of care and full of grace as we look at God's sovereignty and man's responsibility in these texts. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. Many people will put those side by side, and I like to put them one under the other. Uh, The Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, was asked, how do you reconcile divine sovereignty and man's responsibility when it comes to the mystery of God's purposes in our election? And here's what he famously said. How do you reconcile the two? He said, I never try to reconcile friends. Uh, Some may think, whoa, this is such a big subject change that we should just skip it. Let's just fast forward beyond this section because it's so confusing, it's so difficult, it's so controversial. Let's just go to Romans chapter 12 and let's get into the practical side of Paul's letter. But that's a big mistake. Uh, Others will completely avoid or not even touch it in their teaching. And I think that's a mistake as well. As we approach these three chapters, we need to do so with a certain tone and that is appreciation, humility, and reverence. The reason we approach this with appreciation, humility, and reverence is five uh, five reasons. And and I want you to consider these five reasons as we go into this section. Okay, Number one, I want us to consider the intended audience. Paul is addressing 
a church. Remember, he's writing to the church at Rome. And in that church, there were both Jewish and Gentile Roman believers. And Paul seems to be making a, a full sweeping legal case here. If you're into law, you love the book of Romans, right? Because out of all of the Old Testament quotes in all of Paul's writings, at least one third of them are found here in these chapters. So he's building a legal case from the Old Testament. And the density of Hebrew scriptures uh, and their references should cause us to slow down and look up each one of these as Paul makes his case. And I'll quote them and give you the reference, but it's your job to go back later this week and to read through those and meditate on them. So consider the intended audience. Number two, we need to consider the theme. What is the theme of Romans 9 through 11? Well, it's a biblical survey of the merciful and sovereign purposes of God. We're actually going to see the word pair, mercy and compassion, or show mercy, show compassion, for the first time in Romans. They haven't even been mentioned uh, all the way from Romans 1 through 8. But here in 9 through 11, they show up 11 times. So this is clearly something that Paul is trying to like, promote. Well, I want you to get this in your heads. Mercy and compassion. This is a very foundational idea. And we don't want to fast forward that. It's very easy for us to get confused or to come up with our own conclusions based on Romans 9 through 11. We can look and go, oh, well, this is what I think Paul is saying. And then we kind of read into what he's saying rather than slowing down and understand these passages in the greater, grander theme, which is the sovereign mercy of God. And we should all be a little more thankful for God's sovereign mercy. Amen? Well, number three, we're going to consider the context. So remember, Paul has literally just asserted his confidence in God's unshakable love and favor for his people. So it would be right to introduce the elephant in the room. What's the elephant? Well, even the newly initiated will come to this conclusion or this question. They would say, well, wait, if it's true that nothing can separate us from God's incredible love and God doesn't reject his own, well, then, then how do you explain Israel? What do you do with Israel? And in fact, theologians call this the Israel problem. What do we do with Israel? God, nothing can separate us from his love. Mm. Well, what do we do with Israel? And so Paul, some would say, well, Paul painted himself in a corner. Uh, maybe what separated the Jews from God is something that can separate me from his love. And F.F. F. Bruce says this. He says, it was a paradox, not to say a scandal, that the very nation which had been specially prepared by God for this time of fulfillment, the nation which could glory in so many unique privileges of divine grace, including above all the messianic hope, the nation into which in due course the Messiah had been born should have failed to recognize him when he came. While men and women of other nations, which had never enjoyed such privileges, embraced the gospel eagerly the first time they heard it. How could this be harmonized with God's choice of Israel and his declared purpose of blessing the world through Israel? Well, there's an answer to that question. And one that within us should invoke faith and joy and even more assurance, not less assurance, in the love of God. And so we're going to tackle that question as we study uh, this section. Not only that, but number four, consider the conclusion. The conclusion of Romans 9 through 11, his response at the end of this exposition, at the very end of Romans 11. In fact, let's just look at it. Flip over to Romans 11 at the very end, starting in verse 33. Paul says, Oh, the depths or the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, or who has 
given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Paul breaks into a worship song. So this is, a, this is the natural response when you and I lean forward and, and consider the faithful mercies of God toward his people. It should cause us to break forth into maybe even spontaneous worship, adoration, as we consider the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. So if your response, listen to me very carefully, if your response is to walk away from Romans 9 through 11 in this study, any of these weeks, and your attitude is arrogance or anger, then let that be the litmus test of your heart toward the gracious, sovereign work of God in the world. I, I even recently have seen people get contentious about this section of Scripture, even recently, whether it has to do with election or Israel. And I think we need to check our hearts if we are actively looking for moments to stir up controversy. We need to check our hearts. I want to find something to disagree with. I want to find something to be uh, controversy or contentious about. Uh, we are not to have that attitude. And so consider the conclusion. The conclusion is, I can't believe how merciful and good God is. And that should be all of our responses. But finally, number five, let's consider ourselves. So though we don't have a high percentage of believers here at Shoreline who are ethnically Jewish, I know because we did the survey. <laughs> I know we do not have a huge amount of ethnically Jewish people here. Uh, there are still many relevant parallels and points of application that we can make. So this isn't just a theoretical. The Paul says, yeah, let's just talk about theory. And only meant for first century Jewish Christians. No, what we're going to see today is that many of us, maybe even here today, may be in a similar boat as the first century Jew. And so we need to lean forward to learn about and appreciate the mercies of God. So though chapter 9 begins with great pain, it concludes in chapter 11 with great praise to God. And some have suggest suggested that Romans 9 deals with Israel's past. I think we have it on the screen. That this was sovereign election. And that Romans 10 deals with primarily Israel's present, which is a national rejection. And then Romans 11 deals with Israel's future, which is a remnant restoration. And so let's begin with this mini-series in Romans, looking at the first 13 verses of Romans 9. And here's how we're going to break today's uh, section down. And I, again, encourage you every week, uh, throughout the week, if not at least on the weekend, to read ahead and uh, to know what we're going to be studying. And you get the digital bulletin that gives you the text so you know what we're going to study. So here's today's uh, breakdown or outline. We're going to see in verses 1 through 3, Paul's anguish. We're going to see in verses 4 and 5, Israel's advantage. And then we're going to see in verses 6 through 13, faith's ancestry. Where does faith come from? So let's begin by looking at Paul's anguish. He says in verse 1, Dean just read it, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Someone may have been tempted to read Paul's letter and try to read something into Paul's letter that Paul never intended. You've heard this before. In interviews, some people who are doing, you know, journalistic interviews will ask someone, do you like uh, dogs? And they would say, yes, I love dogs. And then they'd say, so you're saying you hate all cats. Uh, we don't like that when people read into what we're saying, although that is true of me. I do prefer dogs over cats. Someone may be tempted to read something into Paul's letter that he never intended, that he, for some reason, was against the Jews based on how strong he had been addressing them. Do you guys remember this? 
rewind Romans 2, 17 through 24. I'm not going to read all of this, but Paul basically says, if you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law and you boast in God and you know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law and if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness, he goes down in verse 21, then you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? And by, by the end, he says, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. And so he's been very strong in the letter of Romans. Uh, you add to the, the strong statements he's been making to the, to the Jewish arguers, you add to that the reputation that Paul had among the Jews, among the Jews specifically in Asia, that he was their enemy. In fact, Acts 21 captures this from their own mouth. The Jews from Asia, seen him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. This is Paul crying out, and this is not laying hands like, let's pray for him. Let's lay hands on him. Let's grab him and let's hurt him. And they cried out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. There was great animosity of the Jews, specifically in Asia, towards Paul. And so some may have been tempted to think, well, that's what Paul has for the Jews. Paul has some sort of vendetta against them because the previously unconverted persecutor of the church is now directing his rage back to the people he uh, used to identify with. Is that what's happening? Well, if you notice with me, Paul in verse 3 refers to them as my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He doesn't say my enemies. He says these are my brothers. In these verses, I believe Paul is seeking to persuade the Roman church reading this letter that he's not against the Jews at all. In fact, the polar opposite is true. He was for them. His sincere love for them was legit. So Paul provides three affirmations in verse one, and he uses similar language to someone who's taken an oath, saying, I'm, I'm attesting that what I'm saying is absolutely true. And multiple witnesses sign off on this. Notice, first Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. In other words, I am writing this under the conviction of Jesus himself. And that's kind of the positive. And then secondly, he gives the negative. He says, I'm not lying. Uh, I'm being truthful. I'm not lying. This is not an empty statement I'm about to make. This is not an exaggeration. But then thirdly, he says, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. We know man's conscience is fallible and can be swayed based on cultural pressure. But Paul, he said, no, I'm being led. I'm being directed by the Holy Spirit as I express my anguish for my kinsmen. So if you would, there are two witnesses, aren't there? There's Christ and the Spirit bearing witness that what Paul's saying is absolutely true. And notice what he says. He says, I'm expressing, verse 2, great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. The idea in the Greek here is of a consistent, consuming pain. Paul's not just like, oh, you know, I got a virtue signal. Yeah, it's bad that what's happening. No. He says, this is from the heart. This is something that is consistently consuming me with pain. What brought Paul such internal agony? Well, notice verse three. He says, for I wish, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Notice that word wish in verse three. This wish is in the imperfect tense and it implies that the wish that Paul had began at one point, but eventually stopped because it was impossible. It's the same word used in Philemon 13, where Paul says, I wished to keep Onesimus, the useful new believer, with me, if that weren't too much to ask, but it was. So, so maybe Paul did entertain this idea in the past, this prayer request. And the prayer request was that God would curse Paul 
in, in order that every national Israelite would receive the gospel. If you don't believe me, just glance ahead on the screen, Romans 10.1. He says, brothers, my heart's desire, there's that word again, heart, and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Paul is saying in these verses, I love my brothers, the Jews, so much that I've actually thought of a trade. My spiritual life for the nation. I'll be cursed, I'll be cut off from Christ, and if that happens, I'm willing that that would happen, that they, the whole uh, group of Jews nationally would be joined together with the very Messiah that they rejected, that they crucified. By the way, that wasn't the first time that someone prayed that or interceded for the Jews. Moses did this in Exodus 32, right after the tragedy of the golden calf. Look how similar this is. Moses says, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you would, or if you will, forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. In other words, Moses, you can't, you can't do that. Uh, one theologian calls Paul's compassion for his brothers a spark from the fire of Christ's substitutionary love. Why? Because Paul's prepared to die in their place. However, though that's true, no true believer would actually desire to be estranged from Christ. And no believer will ever experience this hypothetical. Uh, and so beginning in verse 4, Paul seems to pick up a train of thought that he began back in chapter 3. Notice on the screen what he said in Romans 3.1. He said, well, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? You'd expect him to say nothing, but remember there he said much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So that begin with started in Romans 3, and he's finally come back around to it. Uh, not just the oracles of God, which is used four times in the New Testament, and it it refers to Mosaic law or Old Testament or basic teachings or doctrines in the scripture. So he says, not only did the Jews have that given to them and trusted to them, but also he goes on to say Israel was entrusted with several other important things. And we're going to look at eight. He mentions eight of them. So the second section is Israel's advantage. Let's read verses four and five, and then we'll list them out. Notice with me, Paul says they are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Well, notice with me that Paul lists eight privileges that belong to the Israelites. First, he says, to them belong the adoption. Adoption. Now, normally this is used of Christians in the New Testament. We, we are adopted. But Paul will explain this in more detail in the coming verses. Israel's status was not based on something inherent within them. It was based on God's, an act of God's grace. He adopted them. He reached in based on nothing spectacular about them, but he adopted them. But secondly, notice that they had the glory and that is not referring to the final glory of God's kingdom because both Jew and Gentile will be able to receive that. This is referring to the Shekinah, which is kind of the visible or luminous presence of the divine presence when God visited his people and was localized to the Jewish tabernacle and the temple. And we read about this through Exodus and other places in the Old Testament. They had that. Not every nation had God's Shekinah glory among them, and they had that. 
But notice next, Paul says to Israel belongs both the covenants and the giving of the law. That hasn't happened with all people where God has come to a nation and made a promise, made a covenant. And he did that with each of Israel's patriarchs, essentially with Abraham, but he revisited that and renewed that with Isaac and Jacob. Not only the, the covenants, but at Sinai, he gave his law to Israel. And though by the law, no one is justified in God's sight, it nonetheless was good and useful. He gave his people the law. Well, not only that, but Paul says to Israel belongs the worship, the promises, and the patriarchs. When you hear the worship, that simply refers to the temple, the entire sacrificial system that had been entrusted to the people of Israel. He didn't give that to Egypt, he gave that to Israel. The Abrahamic promises were not offered right, to some other nation, though every nation would be blessed through them. The patriarchs, or you could say the fathers of the nation, had each been visited by God and had been given his divine favor, love, and faithfulness. And so if those weren't enough, those would have been simply enough. Wow, the people had all this privilege. They were given all these things. And yet we have the coup de grace, right? He says, from their race is the Christ. And then I love this. One of the clearest pictures of divinity in all the New Testament of Jesus says, who is God over all, blessed forever. You see, the Christ or the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, he says, was a descendant of David. He was a descendant of Abraham. And it's from their race, from the Jews, that Christ um, arrived on the scene. Now, you and I feel honor when we find out a celebrity was born in our town. There's kind of that Bradenton pride. It's very little, but it's there. You know, kind of Bradenton pride. All right. So-and-so was born here. Yeah. Claim to fame. Or if you had a common ancestor, you look at me like, I didn't know I was related to Benjamin Franklin. How cool is that? But see, nothing compares to the honor of the Messiah himself descending from the people of Israel. Now you would surmise with all these blessings, with all this privilege, Israel would have been well prepared to receive her Messiah and to embrace and worship and submit to him. So was God's word ineffectual? Has God's promise to his people failed? Paul cautions us not to draw the wrong conclusion. Verse six, he says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Has God's word failed? No. By the way, um, that phrase here in verse six, the word of God, you want to circle that and jot down, that is referring to all the promises of God made to Israel. What he's saying here is, we've already learned this back in Romans chapter three. Uh, what he's saying here is that God had a special relationship with Israel. And remember, we learned this in, in Romans three, that he considered Israel, the nation of Israel, to be his vineyard, his bride, remember? His nation, his personally invited guests to the wedding banquet and his fig tree. There's some other analogies in the Old Testament, but those are kind of the primary ones. But there's a problem, right? The fig tree that God had expected to be bearing fruit was barren. And the bride turned out to be an unfaithful harlot. And the nation that was supposed to be faithful to Yahweh had prostituted herself out to other gods. They were guests of the banquet, invited to come and enjoy the wedding feast, and they had selfishly declined Yahweh's personal invite. They even attacked his servants and killed them. And so listen, it wasn't that God's word or promise had failed, that his promise to bless his people had failed. We know his promises never fail, that his word will never falter, amen? 
Instead, we need to be intellectually honest about our definitions of Israel. And so Paul says, maybe we've misunderstood what we mean by Israel. So let's clarify what we mean. And that brings us to our third section, faith's ancestry. Look at the second half of verse 6. We get a clear definition of what the Bible means by Israel. Notice verse 6. He says, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Okay, glad that cleared it up for you. It's a little confusing. We're going to get into this. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. What is Paul saying here? Let's be slow to understand this. Paul is saying there has always been, there has always been two Israels. There's the physical descendants, a much larger group. <laughs> and then there are the true sons, the spiritual descendants, which is a much smaller group, and this is the descendants by faith. Remember, even the name Israel was a second name. That was the name given to Jacob years and years after he was born. And so I like to say it this way. What Paul is saying in the second half of verse 6 is not everyone who is born in the line of Jacob is considered to be Israel. Does that make sense? So let me put this on the screen. In other words, being a descendant does not equal belonging. Just because you're a descendant, you were born in the family, doesn't mean you actually belong to the family of faith. So to back up that claim, Paul uses two examples from the Old Testament. For his first example, you want to jot this down, he quotes Genesis 21:12 directly. And he makes the point that Abraham, remember, had another son. Does anyone know who Abraham's other son was? There's Isaac, and who's the other son? Ishmael, very good. But Ishmael was not the son of promise, was he? No, Isaac was. So Ishmael could say all day long, wait a minute, I'm a descendant of Abraham. So I'm, I receive the promise. I, I deserve it. Uh, but was he the son of promise? No. So then Paul also quotes, jot this down, Genesis 18.14. Genesis 18.14. God tells Abram's wife, Sarah, that within a year, she's going to give birth to a son, the son of promise, Isaac. So look at the second example that Paul gives in verse 10. He says, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, Rebekah was told, the, old, the older will serve the younger. You guys remember this in Genesis Remember Isaac and Rebekah, they have two sons. And before they're born, you want to jot this down, Genesis 25, 23. Remember Genesis 25, 23, God tells Rebekah, there's two nations in your womb, two nations. The older represented in the son, the, the, the twin Esau, is actually going to serve the younger twin Jacob. And this is before any of them had done anything. Any works. Hey, this is even before they had their first diaper change. Their status was not because of works where God said, man, I really like that kid Jacob. And I really don't like that kid Esau. That's not the idea whatsoever. Their status was not because of works. It was before they were even born. It was, it was because of him who calls. So the effectual call of God is what matters without regard to works. God's purpose of election was seen in the fact that he showed divine favor to Jacob who didn't do anything to merit acceptance. You guys know the story. 
Jacob comes out of the womb. Esau comes out. Oh, it's a boy. Well, and holding on to his heel is the name, is Jacob, whose name means heel catcher, a.k.a. deceiver. That's what his namesake was. He came out of the womb going, I want to be the firstborn. And this was a, an attitude that he had for most of his life until God touched his hip and he was submitted to God. And God said, I'm going to change your name from Jacob, the deceiver, to Israel, the one who's governed by God or the one who struggles with God. And then so I believe at that moment, he finally fulfilled the promise that God had given him that needed to be received by faith. Jacob became Israel by faith when God changed his name. So Paul is essentially making two important points here, okay? And stay with me. He's first saying that the children of the flesh are not automatically God's children. You can be a descendant, but that doesn't mean by default that you belong to God's family. And number two, God's purposes in election do not take into account our good works, but his gracious calling. Now, we are we are saved not by our works, but unto good works, and we do good works, but those aren't the reason God saves us. So to make that second point abundantly clear, we come to verse 13. Maybe we'll just skip it today and uh, we'll just call it a day. No, we come to verse 13, right? All of the scriptures are God-breathed and useful, so we must not skip any verses. Verse 13 says, as it is written, and it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What do we do with verse 13. Well, we don't shrink away from it. The word hate is a loaded word today. So let's be careful to define it biblically. Let's not let our cultural definitions come into play because culturally, the word hate means you disagree with me. So you have hate speech and hate crimes because you don't agree with me. And you have to agree with me and then you love me by agreeing with me. That's kind of sad and silly if you if you don't agree with someone's lifestyle choices, now you hate them, okay? And, and that's uh, just a difference of opinion It's called hate today. Uh, but a biblical idea of hatred, uh, the, the broader biblical idea, uh, the hatred of God towards sinners means rejection, okay? So we have to understand that. The Bible doesn't say God loves and there's no hate. No, it speaks of his hatred for sin and his hatred for sinners, now, some read this and they go, I can't believe that God hated Esau. That is just surprising to me. And I read this and I say, I'm surprised that God loved Jacob. Did you not read your Bibles to hear who Jacob was? I'm blown away that God would extend his love, his kind and benevolent love toward an undeserving person like a Jacob, toward an undeserving person like me. Would that we spend as much time basking in the truth of God's love for the saints as we do perplexed about God's hatred for sinners and for sin. Verse 13 is actually a quote from a completely different section of Scripture. So I want you to jot this down and look at it later. Don't take my word for it. Be a Berean. Malachi 1, 2, and 3. And there, Malachi is referring to Edom, which is the nation that descended from Esau. So both of the references that Paul quotes, both Genesis 25 and Malachi 1, stay with me, these are referring not necessarily to an individual, but to the nations that those individuals represent. And one person asks the question, if God is sovereign over nations, isn't he sovereign over individuals? So you could read verse 13 this way. The nation that was represented in Jacob was loved by me, was accepted by me. But I've rejected the nation. I've hated the nation that would eventually descend from Esau. They were not elected for the role of service that Israel was. And so you put all that together. Let's put it all together and put a nice little bow on it. 
Paul's argument is clear. God's promise to Israel is not what failed. The people who were only physical descendants and not walking in Abrahamic faith were the ones who failed. You see, the promise was made to true Israel for those who were the children of the promise, as we just sang, children of faith. And this was completely distinct from works. It was all a matter of God's purpose in election. John Stott says, God's promise did not fail, but it was only fulfilled in the Israel within Israel. Earlier, remember, Paul had said in Romans 2, he said in verses 20 and 29, no one is a Jew who's merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. So you following his train of thought? It's possible to be a Jew outwardly, meaning, yeah, I'm a physical descendant of, of Abraham, of Jacob, but not truly be a spiritual descendant of Abraham and be of Israel. John Flavel says it this way, if Abraham's faith be not in your hearts, it will be no advantage that Abraham's blood runs in your veins. You see, both Ishmael and Esau had Abraham as their father. Both Ishmael, both he and Esau had been circumcised. Both Ishmael and Esau, in some sense, were members of God's covenant. But one person said it best. They said they, there were the people who were kept by the covenant, and then there was a group in that group who kept the covenant they were kept by. And see, don't let these verses kind of get stored away in, you know how we can kind of segregate things in our mind and we can kind of TV dinner at where this is over in this section, that's in that section and distinguish it this morning. Don't do this this morning. We go, okay, well, that's really great to learn that about Israel. And Paul is making a good point to the first century. I want to make sure that we bring this home a little bit. And that brings us to our application today. And that is these three things. Number one, in light of the danger of nominal faith, repent and believe the gospel. What do I mean by that? Well, think about it. If it were possible to be a part of the Jewish community, born to Jewish parents who observed the Torah, if it were possible to be circumcised if you were a male and to trace your lineage, male or female, back to one of the 12 tribes and thus back to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and you even participated in the feasts, you attended synagogue like a good little Jewish boy, if it were possible to have all those things but not truly believe, not truly love, not truly obey Yahweh, then what does that say about those who do the same with Christ? You see, if not all of the ethnic community belong to God, isn't it possible? More likely it's probable that within the church there are some who are banking on the fact that mom and dad believe that I was born a Christian, whatever that means, just right out of the womb. You just came out of the womb trusting Christ. Your hands were held up. We use the phrase born-again Christian, and we find that helpful. And I understand we use it, but I don't, it's redundant, isn't it? There's no such thing as a non-born-again Christian. <laughs> we're all born again. Uh, and, and as we learned last week, to be a Christian, you must be born again, regenerated, made new with spiritual rebirth. And so, listen, there's not some. There are many unsaved, who are sitting in a church service this morning, perhaps even here in this church. There's been no repentance. There's been no faith. There's been no spiritual life. You've just been a part of the broader community as a descendant, but not someone who truly belongs to the family of faith. 
You see, one of the strangest faux pas in the modern evangelical church, this is strange to me, is that it's offensive. We find it offensive to suggest someone might not be a Christian. We, we just take it at face value. Oh, yeah, you go to church. You, you attend Sunday morning. You, you say a prayer. Oh, you have a Bible. You quote, what is his name, Sturgeon or Spurgeon? You quote one of those guys. I don't know, he's dead. But you quote, you quote guys on your Instagram. You must be a Christian. Here's what Vody Bauckham says. He says, hell will be filled with people who are baptized. Hell will be filled with people who don't drink, don't smoke, and don't curse, didn't have sex outside of marriage, because not one of those things makes you a Christian. You see, if we spend as much time convicting people to consider if they're saved as we do convincing them that they are saved, we would have revival in the church just from all the unsaved people finally realizing I'm not a Christian, and then they get saved. Uh, in his book, The Unsaved Christian, Dean Ensera says, while it is a sobering moment to admit that your son or daughter who grew up in the church, asked Jesus into their heart and was even baptized, might be a lost person in need of salvation. The embarrassment or failure you may feel is in no way as serious as the reality of being dead in one's sins and needing to be made alive in Christ. I can't help but wonder if, didn't I ask Jesus into my heart, will be one of the pleas of the religious when they stand before the Lord. Wow. You see, in the same way that people of Jewish descent were kicking back in their synagogues, presuming on the grace of God, and believing, I get a free pass. In the same way they do that, people today ease back in their church pew, or in this case, our uncomfortable folding chairs, and they think, well, of course I deserve heaven. I'm a good person. I'm not some wicked Taliban a terrorist or anything. But Sinclair Ferguson reminds us, thinking that I deserve heaven is a sure sign I have no understanding of the gospel. So in light of the danger of nominal faith, repent and believe the gospel. Even if it's embarrassing because everyone here thinks you're saved. Even if you have a seminary degree. Even if you serve in ministry. Even if you've maybe raised your hand at one point or prayed the prayer in your heart. I implore you, do not bank your spiritual hope on fool's gold. Repent and believe the gospel. Number two, in light of your status, which is blessed, give God glory and give him gratitude. What privilege has God given you? Well, Israel was incredibly blessed with these gifts, receiving God's presence, his promises, his patriarchs. And what did she do with it? She as a nation took it for granted and walked in obstinance and idolatry. And today we live in a community where we have so much that God has given us. Think about it. We have access to God's word in our native tongue. You know, many people in the world today do not have access to the scriptures in their language. And I'm thankful we have a church that is wanting to make a dent in that. You and I, we have relative, relative political freedom to gather and to preach the gospel with very limited interference or persecution. That's changing. But today, for the most part in our state, we have relative freedom to do that. You and I, we have the means technologically and even politically and financially to take the gospel, the word of God to the ends of the earth. And more specifically to us right here, we're part of a growing and thriving church community that's seeking to honor God and honor his word in preaching and practice. So have you just for a minute stopped and thought about these things and, and said, Lord, I give you glory? Or have you been meditating on how awful life has been? I would say in light of your status, give God glory and gratitude. 
Finally, number three, in light of your salvation, give others compassion. Do you have as much compassion on others as Paul did on his fellow Jews? We read that he was willing to go to hell for them to be saved. And the sure, sobering reality of future judgment of the unbelieving should sober us up to conviction and should shake us to intercession. Now, in the truest sense, Christ was accursed and Christ was cut off from the Father that you and I would receive salvation. But I love Paul's attitude. In light of your salvation, do you have the same Christ-like substitutionary intercession where you say, oh, Lord, would you, would you be with these people? Would you reach them? Think of your family, your coworkers, your wait staff, your Uber driver, your professor, the fellow teachers you work with or study under, the other employees that are alongside you. And I, my prayer is that we'd be stirred with compassion as we consider their looming condemnation. And that perspective really does help shape our life. Spurgeon said it this way. He said, get love for the souls of men. And then you will not be whining about a dead dog or a sick cat or about the crochets of a family and the little disturbances that John and Mary may make by their idle talk. You will be delivered from petty worries if you're concerned about the souls of men. So get your soul full of a great grief and your little griefs will be driven out. See, Paul had great sorrow and unceasing anguish for his kinsmen. Can you and I say the same things about those that we rub shoulders with in our community? That we're not with a, a nose turned up at them, with an obstinate attitude to them. Know that we look at them with great compassion, with great mercy, realizing that those who are near and dear to us have also rejected Christ. You see, Jesus wept over Jerusalem. And from the cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The man of sorrows became the God of all compassion and bore our sin in his body on the tree. And so as we close this morning, we acknowledge Jesus came to bear our shame, to bear our reproach, that he's God over all, blessed forever. But at Calvary, he was reduced to a worm. He was crushed. He was cursed for our sin. This morning, we're going to receive communion. In just a moment, as the song is playing, our ushers are going to distribute some elements. And as these are being distributed, we encourage you to take two cups and hold on to them and we're going to be receiving them in just a moment. Now listen, if you're not a believer, I have two things to say to you this morning. First, please do not receive these elements. The last thing we want after this sermon is to give you a false assurance of faith uh, in these things that are uh, sacramental, but you've never turned from your sin. You've never trusted Christ for your salvation. So please, uh, this this you know, communion sacrament to the unbeliever is not something that will draw you closer to God. It's not something that impresses God. On the contrary, this is just more condemnation that you're storing up for yourself uh, and because you're asking God to appeal to your works and that's folly. So I would say this to you. Number one, let the trays pass you by. But number two, don't let the gospel pass you by. If you're a Christian, if you aren't a Christian, we ask you, receive Christ. Trust him. Renounce your sinful, lawless ways. Begin afresh today as his forgiven child. Come to the cross and receive life as you lay down your life and die. And be joined with Christ, risen again from the dead to spiritual rebirth. We implore you today, don't let the gospel pass you by. Well, for Christians, we sing to the man of sorrows, who's also our gracious, compassionate God of all comfort. And so let's pray, and then the elements will be distributed, 
and uh, we'll give you some direction before we take them. So bow your heads with me. The worship team, our ushers are going to come at this moment. Lord, the Bible describes you as the God of Israel. And indeed, you are the God of the true believer. And we know from this text, not all who are of Israel belong to Israel. And not all who are in church are in Christ. And so we praise you for your wondrous works and your sovereign purposes in our election. Lord, as we've studied this, we marvel at your hatred of Esau, but mostly of your love for Jacob, that you call Israel your firstborn adopted son, and that out of the many people, you had a remnant who loved, trusted, and obeyed. And we ask, Lord, that we would learn from these examples, that we would not desire evil as many did, but we would see that these were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And so, Lord, we ask that if anyone who thinks he stands firm, take heed lest he fall. Lord, we thank you that no temptation has overtaken us that's not common to man. And God, you are faithful. With each temptation, you provide the way of escape that we can endure it. We thank you, Lord, that the Son was tempted and tried and was without sin. That Christ has provided not only a means of escape, but our salvation and rescue through his finished work at Calvary. Jesus, we praise and we thank you for dying in our place, for bearing our reproach and being the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would apply these truths to us and work in us both to will and to do according to your good pleasure. To the King of Kings, we pray these things. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 1030 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.